How many of you have ever been whitewater rafting? Wow, quite a few. How many of you would like to go whitewater rafting? Great. One of my best memories is a time that my wife Chris and I went whitewater rafting. It was her first experience, and I was so excited because she was finally going to go with me. And we had our youngest son, John, and his wife along in the raft. Now, if you've ever been rafting, you know that there are certain rules that they want to share with you before you get into the raft that will keep you safe. They want to talk about the risks of rafting. And so our guide was talking to us, and here was rule number one, try to stay in the raft. It just makes it a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable if you don't get thrown out and nobody has to rescue you. So that was good. And rule number two was related to rule number one in that if you do get thrown out of the raft, this is what you need to do. Don't stand up in the river. And of course, the reason for that is that there are rocks at the bottom of the river, and because the water's moving so quickly, it can force your head underwater, and with your head underwater, you can't yell, and you can't breathe, so that's not a good thing. And in order to not get thrown out of the raft and end up in the river, there was rule number three, listen to your guide. Do exactly what the guide says. Don't raise your hand, don't ask questions, just trust and obey your rafting guide. Now, on this trip, it was interesting because I've been rafting quite a number of times. And so for me to get into the raft with a guide, I want to know that this guide knows what he or she is doing. So we're walking to the raft, and I'm talking to the guide. Her name is Shannon. She's a college student. And I said, so, Shannon, how long have you been doing this? She said, four years. And I thought, wow, that's good. And I said, well, what kind of training have you had? And she talked about how they would swim down the river three times a day to know where the currents were. And she'd been trained in first aid and water rescue. And I'm thinking, wow, it's a good guide we have. And that was certainly the case because that day we successfully navigated 10 miles of the Arkansas River in Colorado and nobody got ejected from the raft. It's a really successful trip. And I was thinking today about how life mirrors a rafting trip. Because think about it, sometimes you're going down this river of life and things are just calm and you're just enjoying the scenery. Have you ever had a day like that? Or a week like that? Or maybe even a year like that? And then other times when you're cruising down this river of life, there are some rapids, but they're not too bad. They're kind of gentle rapids and you can negotiate them without too much trouble. But then I think all of us know this. Sometimes we come around the bend and we see white water. We see something that's totally unexpected, something that God has allowed to come into our lives and it produces this fear and this anxiety and we wonder, how am I ever gonna get through it? Well, the way you get through it is by having a good guide, a good teacher. And that's what this series is all about. It's called The Teacher Who Changed the World because in order to successfully navigate this really unpredictable, broken world in which we live, we need a teacher, somebody that we can trust. Somebody who really knows what he's doing. Somebody that we are willing to obey. Now, during this series, there's something that I pointed out, and I really want you to get this, church. And this is what I want you to get. The goal of Jesus' teaching. And what we've been focusing on is this. The goal of Jesus' teaching is the transformation of the human what? Yes, the human heart. See, Jesus didn't just come to give us more rules to live by. Do this, don't do that. He didn't come to just give us more information. He came to change our lives by changing our hearts. And think about this. When a person's heart is changed, it changes everything around them. It changes the people around them. It's like throwing a rock onto the surface of a pond and the ripples go out in every direction. If you're married this morning and God is changing your heart, he's giving you the opportunity 
to influence and change your spouse. And as families are changed, churches are changed. And think about this. If you have a whole church full of people and their hearts are being transformed by Christ, what's going to happen to their community? It's going to be transformed as well. And that leads to transformed cities and transformed nations and eventually a transformed world. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said when he called his disciples together and said, go into all the world and make what? Make disciples. People who will accept me as their Lord, as their Savior, and as their teacher. And so this morning we're going to look at another topic that Jesus tackles in something called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to teach us how to deal with our anger, something that affects every one of us. Now, what did Jesus teach about anger? We're going to look at some verses in Matthew chapter 5. So on page 786, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you. And this is what Jesus says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, he's talking about the Old Testament times, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, and we'll define that word in just a moment, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, notice this, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I'll bet that got people's attention when Jesus said that. And then this is how Jesus continues. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now Jesus begins his teaching here with one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And he explains that these commandments that God has given us don't just deal with outward behavior, they deal with the motive of our heart. And here Jesus is talking about how to manage our anger, a condition of the heart that is revealed by the words that we say to other people. Now the Bible has a lot to say about the words that we speak to each other and the words we speak about each other. And this is really important because in the course of one day, we use an incredible number of words. For example, did you know that if you're an average American, you will have 30 conversations a day and spend one-fifth of your life talking? So if you live 70 years, you're going to spend 14 years of your life just talking to people. Now, of course, there are some gender differences when it comes to words. The average man has about 20,000 words that he speaks in the course of a day. Now, do you think women are higher or lower? Significantly higher. The average woman speaks 30,000 words a day. And I'm, I'm really glad that that's the case because it helps, helps me understand something that, that happens to me and Chris. It's time to go to bed, and I've used up all my words, and she hasn't. And she wants to talk and talk. And, am I the only one? But here's the thing. The Bible tells us that our words are so very important. Now, why is that the case? Because if you're going to manage your anger, what do you have to manage? Your words. So why are words important? I've got a can that I took off my pantry this morning. Does anybody know what's in this can? Okay, somebody looked already. How would you know what's in this can? You look at the label, absolutely, and it says Kirby Black Beans, Creole Seasoning, ready to eat. So you know exactly what's in the, inside the can by looking at the label. How can you tell what's inside someone's heart? We don't have labels on us. You listen to their words. 
And this is exactly what Jesus taught. This is a verse from the book of Matthew, Matthew 15. Jesus said, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from where? Come from your heart. Words are important because they let you know what's going on inside your heart. And think about this. Your words let everybody else know what's going on in your heart. And that's one of the reasons that they are so very important. Now, here's another reason that words are important. This is the second thing on your outline. Words have the power to hurt. Words have the power to hurt. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been hurt by someone's words? I think all of us have. Some of us this morning have not completely healed from words that have wounded us in the past. And I remember as a kid, there was this really like a nursery rhyme that we learned to uh, protect ourselves from being hurt. Maybe you know how it goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never what? They'll never hurt me. Is that true? No, absolutely not. And Jesus is addressing certain words, specific words, that can hurt people. And he says here that we should avoid this word, rakah. Don't use that word. Now, that word in Aramaic means empty-headed. Uh, an English equivalent would be the word idiot. Reminds me of the story about this little boy who's riding in the car with his mom. and He says, Mommy, can I ask you a question? She says, Sure, son. He says, How come the idiots only come out when Daddy's driving? <laughs> that one may be a little too convicting for some of us. Words can really hurt, can't they? They have enormous potential to do damage because they have enormous influence in the lives of other people. There's an illustration from the book of James, who was a half-brother of Jesus. So he learned a lot from his big brother about the importance of words. And he said that your words are like the rudder of a ship. Now, what does a rudder do? It determines the direction of the ship. Well, in much the same way, words can determine the direction of someone's life. I read this week that 90% of the men who are in prison were told by a family member hey, someday you're going to end up in prison. And those words became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Our words have tremendous power. Our words can hurt. But here's the positive side. Our words can also heal. And that's the next thing on your outline. Our words have the power to heal. Look at this verse. It says, sharp words cut like a sword, but words of wisdom heal. Now, in the passage that Jesus um, is quoted in, this is from Matthew chapter 5, he is talking really about the power of words to reconcile relationships. And look at this verse again. This is verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. There's a sense of urgency here. First, before you worship God, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift to God. Now let me ask you this. What does it take to reconcile a relationship? takes words. Words like these, hey, I am so sorry I hurt you. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? Now, friends, when we speak those words, sometimes the other person will accept those words, and sometimes the other person will reject those words. But either way, God calls us to do all that we can to reconcile relationships with the words that we use. And it has been my experience that the right words, God-directed words, have enormous power to heal, to heal hearts and to heal relationships. But here's, here's the reality. When you're angry, 
it's really hard to speak those kind of words. So that brings up the second question, well, okay, how can I manage my anger in a way that honors God and benefits others? How do we practically do that? And here's the first, first thing we need to do. Number one, check the condition of your heart. Check the condition of your heart. Where do your words come from? You should know this by now. They come from your heart. And so if we're going to manage our mouth, we can't just try really, really hard not to say the wrong thing. We have to know the condition of our heart and deal with our heart. And if you want to know what's in your heart, you need God to show you. Look at this verse. This is from Psalm 139. It's actually a prayer by King David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And church, one of the reasons it's so important to ask God to show you what's in your heart is because often we're not even aware of things that are in our heart. Think about this. What are the things that have shaped you throughout your life? Well, one of them is your family, the family that you grew up in, the words that you heard as a child, the words your mom and dad spoke to each other between your brothers and sisters, the expectations they had. Those things have shaped your heart. And also the circumstances of your life, the things that you've experienced during this journey down the river of life. Because some of the experiences have been good, the times you've been accepted and loved and encouraged, but there's other times that haven't been good. Times that you've been lied to, rejected, ridiculed, hurt. And so, here's a suggestion. The next time that you say something and you realize as soon as the words escape your lips, man, I wish I hadn't said that. Ask yourself the question, where did that come from? And ask God to help you answer that question by taking a look at your heart because here's the reality. We can't change our hearts unless we know what's in our hearts and unless we ask God to show us where and how we can change. And let me say this, because I think this is so important. What is it that can give us the courage and the confidence to really take an honest look at our hearts? Because often we don't want to do that. We just want to stay closed. It's like if you're driving your car and some of the lights come on on the dashboard, the check engine light, the oil pressure light, you have a choice to make. You can keep driving and hope it just turns off or you can pull over and actually look under the hood. So what would give you the courage and the confidence to pull over and take a look inside your heart? And I believe the answer is this, the gospel. Now the gospel is the good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And here's what I mean. In order to believe the good news of the gospel, what do you have to believe first? You should know this. Absolutely, the bad news, because you have a heart problem. That's where it all starts. We come into this world with a heart that pulls us away from God and his purpose and his plan, and the Bible calls that sin when we disobey God. And because God is holy, our sin separates us from him, and because he's just, he has to punish every sin we've ever committed, and that just punishment is to die and to be separated from him forever in a place that Jesus described as hell. That's pretty bad news, isn't it? And the reality is it gets even worse because we cannot save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves, but God can and God does because of his great love. And that's what the story in the Bible is all about, that God the Father sends God the Son to earth, that Jesus becomes a human being. He lives a perfect life because he has a perfect heart, unlike ours. And then he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and crucified. And on the cross, an amazing thing takes place. God is willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. And this, this wrath of God against sin that we deserve is poured out on Jesus, and he dies for us. And then three days later, God raises him to life and Jesus says, hey, come and follow me. I want to give you a new life. 
Because when you choose to follow me, you are totally accepted. You are deeply loved. You are completely forgiven. And you see, when you really believe that, it changes everything. It gives you the courage and the confidence to look at your heart because you know, hey, I've got a lot of things that I need to deal with, but it's okay because God accepts me. And it means that you don't have to pretend that you're better than you are. You don't have to always be talking about your accomplishments to feel more valuable because you're already valuable in God's sight. You don't have to be concerned that if you're honest that people will reject you because God has already accepted you. And because God loves you, he wants to change your heart. But it all begins by being honest about what's there. So back to our question, how can I manage my anger in a way that honors God and benefits others? Here's the second thing. Listen and think before you speak. Listen and think before you speak. There was a book that I read a number of years ago by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anybody read that book? Number of habits that he talks about, and one is this. Seek first to be understood. Seek first, <laughs> I got it backwards. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. Now think about that. If you're talking to somebody, the best approach is to try to understand them first before you try to get them to understand you. What a great idea. Where did it come from? It came from the Bible, specifically from the book of James. Look at this verse. It says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get what? Slow to get angry. See, if we really stop and listen and try to understand what's in somebody's head and what's in somebody's heart, it really can diffuse our anger. And notice this verse. This is from the book of Proverbs. It says this, the heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. Now here's a, another important principle when it comes to anger management. Number three on your outline, don't delay dealing with your anger. Don't put it off. Don't delay dealing with your anger. And Jesus is getting at this specifically because in verse 25, he says, settle matters quickly. Don't put it off. Don't delay. And notice this verse in the book of Ephesians. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus ever get angry? Absolutely. Why was he angry? He got angry at injustice. Jesus was angry when people had a lack of compassion for other people. And it's important for us to understand that there are different kinds of anger. There is righteous anger, the kind of anger that God has against sin. And there is this, this unrighteous anger that we often experience because of our pride and our selfishness. Now, can people, can people experience righteous anger? Absolutely. We can be angry with the same things that make God angry. But regardless of the kind of anger we have, we need to learn to deal with it without delay. And one of the most important things to do when you feel anger rising up in your heart is to talk to God about it. And say, God, I'm feeling so angry right now. Would you help me understand if this is righteous anger? Is this something that you would be angry about? Or God, is it just me? You know, is this my selfishness? Is this my pride getting in the way? And let me say this. If you're married, don't delay dealing with your anger. That verse that we just looked at said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I remember a story about a guy who had been married for decades and he was in church and this verse was up on the screen and a friend said, hey, did you ever 
go to bed angry at your wife? He said, no, but there were a few times I had to stay up for a couple of days. We need to deal with our anger without delay. And here's number four. Ask for God's help every day. Ask for God's help every single day. Look at this verse from the book of Psalms. It says this, Take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. Listen, if you want to control your words, ask God to control your heart. And here's a verse that I would encourage you to memorize. This is really a prayer. It's from Psalm 19. It says this, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, I have one more question for you this morning as I close, and the question is this. How many of you like to dance? You can put your hand up. This is a Presbyterian church. How many of you like to dance? Okay, the hands are going up now. Okay, I made a safe environment for you. Um, How many of you are good at dancing? All right, now I've been at weddings with quite a few of you, and I've seen you dance. And some of you are really good. In fact, we have some people in church leadership here that are really good dancers. And you know who you are. Now, when I was a kid, my mom loved to dance, and she had all these records, and and she would put on music, and she taught me to dance. And one of the dances that I learned was the waltz. Now, how many steps are there in a waltz? Who knows? You can say it. Say it out loud. How many steps? Not four. (laughs) Three. Three steps. Think about waltz music. And the three steps, you go here, 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 here. One, two, three, one, two, three. And who knows how to waltz? Okay, if you don't, you can watch a YouTube video. It's really easy, okay? So what you do is you go one, two, three, one, two, three, and when you get good, you kind of move around the dance floor, and sometimes you even add a spin or two to make it fancy. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to teach you a dance. So are you ready? You don't even have to get out of your seat. It's called the gospel dance. And here's why it's so important. The gospel dance helps us understand the purpose of Jesus' teaching, which is the transformation of the human heart. Good, so you're with me. When Jesus came to our world, he had a very straightforward message, and the message was this. Repent and believe the good news. So what do you think the first step in the gospel dance is? Hey, you guys, this is great. Yes, repent. And some of you know what that word means. It comes from a Greek word that means to change your mind. It means that you see things from God's point of view. It really means being sorrowful over sin. You say, God, I am so sorry. What I've done breaks my heart because I know it breaks your heart, so I want to turn away from my sin and I want to follow you. That's what repentance is all about. So the first step in this gospel waltz is repent. And what's the second step? Believe. Repent and believe the good news. We need to believe what Jesus says is actually true, that when we follow him, that we're given a new record, a new identity, a new potential. See, the things that we once thought were impossible are now possible because Jesus lives in us. It is possible now to manage our anger. It is possible to break free from an addiction. It is possible to overcome crushing anxiety because it's not just you. It's Jesus living in you that enables you to do these things. So the first step in the gospel dance is what? Repent. Believe, and here's the next step, obey. Actually do what Jesus says. Put his teaching into practice in your life. So here's how it works. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to repent. 
You have to believe. You have to obey. But is that the end of the story? The answer would be no. Because do you always obey what Jesus says? I don't. We disobey God with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions. So what do you do when you find that you've disobeyed God? You can pray, but it starts with a D. You dance. You do the gospel dance. So what are the steps? You repent. You go, God, I'm sorry. I said it again. I was angry. I, man, I, those words hurt somebody. You repent. I don't want to do that anymore. You believe. God, I believe that you can forgive me and you can give me the power to change. And then you actually step out in faith and obey. And as you do this gospel dance, and remember it's repent, believe, obey, repent, believe, obey, repent, believe, obey. As you do this over and over again, what happens to your heart? It changes. And you become more like who? Like Christ himself. Isn't that amazing? But here's a sad reality. There are Christians who have left the dance floor. Christians who are stuck. Christians who are not growing, who are not changing. And why is that the case? Because they've stopped repenting. They've stopped believing. They've stopped obeying God. Now maybe you know somebody like that this morning. Or maybe that's where you are. You're just stuck in your relationship with Jesus. And here's why that is so important, because friends, we live before a watching world. Think about this, a, a person who's not a Christian watching another Christian who's stuck, a Christian who's not growing, who's not changing, and they look at this person and go, man, you got problems. And they look at their own life and go, I got problems, but I just don't see much difference between us and how we handle our problems. And on the other hand, you have this, this person who's not a Christian, and they see a person a Christian, a follower of Jesus who's doing the gospel dance. The person who is repenting. Every time they fall down, they come and they confess and they ask God to forgive them and they believe that, that they can change and they actually obey Jesus and they look at this person and go, man, you've got problems in your life but you handled them a lot differently than I do. I'd like to know why is that the case? And church, you've heard me say this so many times. The local church is the hope of the world for two reasons. Because of our message and because of our people. People who are following Jesus and becoming more like him. And so here's my prayer this morning for all of us. That Jesus would transform our hearts as we listen to his teaching. And as we do the gospel dance. As we repent, as we believe as we obey the teacher who is changing the world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your truth that changes us, that transforms our hearts and our lives. God, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, today as we remember the sacrifice that our Savior has made for us, as we celebrate communion together, God, may this be an opportunity for us to dance really, Lord, to repent, to turn away from any sin in our lives, to believe again and again the gospel is true, that we have a new record, a new identity, a new potential because of Christ, and then to step out in renewed obedience. So God, as we celebrate today, I pray that you would do this. Lord, make us aware of your presence today. We're, you're always here with us, God, but I pray that you would just give us that close connection with your heart. Help us to worship you. Help us to be thankful today, God, for your incredible grace. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.